from New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And on this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we'll be rolling around in the pile of dog-eared paperbacks and VHS tapes that is Netflix's nostalgic new horror sci-fi series, Stranger Things. Among the many influences Stranger Things wears on its non-existent sleeve of its puffy 80s vest are Steven Spielberg movies and Stephen King novels. And since we've already done an episode on Stephen King adaptations, that's back in SVU 45 if you want to check it out. This time around, we'll be recommending some films that, like Stranger Things, were shaped by Spielberg, all of them available to rent or stream right now. But before we get to that, we have Opening Break, the segment we do in conjunction with Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few films that are new on demand. And Matt, you're up this time. What have you got for us? I've got a trio of films that I am intrigued to see. The first one is available now on VOD. It's called Equals, directed by Drake Doremus. And I will read you a plot description. It stars Nicholas Holt and Kristen Stewart as two people infected with a disease that regains their ability to feel compassion and emotion in a dystopian world where emotions don't exist. And you also have Guy Pierce and Jackie Weaver in supporting roles. The movie premiered at the Venice Film Festival. It also played the Toronto Film Festival last fall. And while the lead pairing is intriguing to me, I like Nicholas Holt. And I actually, I, I find myself very much enjoying Kristen Stewart lately. I think she's making some very interesting choices of roles as an actor and then doing some strong work in those roles. And actually, just the idea of her playing a character learning or starting to feel things just seems like it's kind of deliberately playing into this sort of persona that she has built up where she's an actress who tends to underplay things. And I think that's very interesting as well. But really, I'm most interested because this is a movie by Drake Doremus. And I really liked his 2011 movie, Like Crazy, which was a long-distance romance movie starring Felicity Jones at the beginning of her career. Now she, of course, is headlining Star Wars movies. And you also had the late Anton Yelchin, who was really good in that movie as well. And that was that was just a very smart and sensitive kind of romantic indie. And I'm excited to see what this guy would do. With a bigger budget, a little high-concept sci-fi premise, it sounds like your classic kind of, you know, sort of art house sci-fi or indie sci-fi where it's a world that's not necessarily based on effects or anything like that, but on these – on emotions or the lack thereof. So this is what I'm really uh, intrigued to see. I haven't had a chance to catch it yet at any of the festivals that it's played. It is called Equals, and it is available now on VOD. Our next choice is available on VOD starting on August 2nd, and that is the film The Bronze, directed by Brian Buckley. And the plot description of this one is, A foul-mouthed former gymnast bronze medalist must fight for her local celebrity status when a new young athlete star rises in town. This movie premiered at the Sundance Film Festival back in 2015 and admittedly did not get outstanding reviews. I have been waiting to see this one, though, because the film star and co-writer, Melissa Rausch, actually went to high school with me. We did plays together. Wow, I didn't know that. You didn't know that? That is true. We were in all the plays together. We were in drama club together. And now she is hugely successful, a star of television and film. And I am the even more hugely successful co-host of Film Spotting SVU. Uh, So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing this. I hope I I enjoy it. it has, uh, for all of its, I think, 
weaknesses that have been observed uh-huh. in reviews. Uh-huh. It has a boudoir scene that is yes, I've heard yes, and that should be really exciting for me to watch or <laughs> incredibly uncomfortable. So that is the bronze, and that will be available on VOD on August second. And finally, also available on VOD on August second is Batman: The Killing Joke. And this is the latest in the DC series of what they call animated original movies, most of which are based on these classic DC comic storylines. This one is based on the graphic novel Batman the Killing Joke by illustrator Brian Boland and writer Alan Moore. That's the guy who wrote Watchmen and V4 Vendetta. And this is one of his most famous, slightly more mainstream superhero stories I have enjoyed a couple of these DC animated movies that I've seen, and I've certainly read The Killing Joke more than once. I also did want to mention that if you're a fan of these DC animated movies, we have this great article on Screen Crush right now, plug, 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 that uh, my old colleague from The Dissolve, Noel Murray, wrote for us. He ranked every single one of these DC animated movies. There are 26 of them so far, and he ranked all of them, including Batman The Killing Joke, and he actually ranked The Killing Joke pretty highly, so I'm looking forward to checking that out. It is Batman the Killing Joke. It is available on VOD on August 2nd. This is Hawkins. I don't know the worst thing that's ever happened here in the four years I've been working here. It was when an owl attacked Eleanor Gillespie's head because it thought that her hair was a nest. folks you know how this works on every episode of film spotting svu we turn the choice of our main review over to you by letting you vote on one of three options and in our last episode we gave you three recent movies or tv series that were all set in the 80s john carney's teen boys start a band movie sing street richard or netflix's original series stranger things and richard linklater's spiritual sequel to days and confused everybody wants some Both of the movies, and they are very good movies, got obliterated by (laughs) Stranger Things, which took over half the votes. Stranger Things is the work of Matt and Ross Duffer, who, like so many filmmaking teams, are brothers. They're actually twins, and they're relative newcomers, having directed one feature-length movie before this, a 2015 film called Hidden, which is a thriller about a family in hiding in an abandoned fallout shelter after this global epidemic. It didn't really make a mark, but you can rent it if you're curious. It kind of occupies similar territory of like twisty genre fare. Uh, The Duffer brothers also worked on the M. Night Shyamalan produced show Wayward Pines, which I would say also occupies this territory of twisty sci-fi high concept fare. So it really set them up for their their debut on Netflix. Did not stray far from Mm. the path they had set up for themselves. Stranger Things is set in Indiana in 1983, where the disappearance of a 12-year-old boy named Will Byers sets off this series of events involving a mysterious government agency, a young girl with telekinetic powers named Eleven, an alternate dimension the characters name the Upside Down, and a monster. 
there are a few clumps of characters who become involved in fig- figuring out what's happening. Uh, there's Will's mom, Joyce, played by Winona Ryder, who becomes convinced that Will's communicating through the lights uh, and who teams up with this substance abusing chief of police. Then there are Will's friends, Mike, Dustin, and Lewis, a bunch of adorably prepubescent nerds who meet Eleven and team up somewhat reluctantly to search for Will for themselves. And then there's Nancy, Mike's older sister, whose own friend goes missing and who becomes part of this love triangle between Will's older brother and the school's reigning popular kid. If all of these things sound like fragments of 80s movies sewn together, that's part of the point of Stranger Things, which is this massive pastiche of films from the era and beyond and pop culture references, particularly, though, uh, those of Steven Spielberg. Most obviously, Mike, his pals, their bikes, and Eleven are living out a variation on E.T., while Joyce is in her own dark Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There are also touches of Alien, a bit of Stephen King, actually a lot of Stephen King, Poltergeist, The Goonies, Daryl, the score is pure John Carpenter, and on and on. Scanners. Yes. Different people have uh, made lists of just like compiling all of the many. And I'm sure no one's is exactly the same. Exactly. There are a lot in there. Uh, So Matt, the big question of Stranger Things is, is this series, eight episodes, a short for a Netflix series, is it more than the sum of its references, or is it just a giant nostalgia bomb designed <laughs> to stun you into, um, you know, into surrender with all of its familiarity? Uh, I'm going to have to vote closer to the latter. I was not a huge fan of this. I felt like it really was. I mean, to me, it felt like kind of a. Uh, well, actually, let me first say that you know I, I put on Facebook a mention, sort of just like, uh, what did you think of Stranger Things? I was curious to kind of gauge the sentiment because I watched it while I was on vacation and I haven't really been paying attention. And uh, someone who follows me on Facebook, I thought summed it up nicely. His name is John Cry, and he wrote, "I enjoyed the whole thing, but in a way that I enjoy a good DJ as a remixed mashup of things I already like, but not as an original work of its own." And I think that's the positive way to spin it. Whereas I felt more like the negative way to spin it, because to me, it felt at times, not always, but like a photocopy of a photocopy, um, where it maintains the basic contours of the thing that it's a copy of, but it's kind of fuzzy, it's a little ill-defined, it's sort of frustrating to look at, and generally, it's just not as useful or as effective as the original thing. Like it, it To me, it really did feel like I was just watching a bunch of stuff from other stuff that was all kind of thrown together and it looks good and there are things there's some good performances and the score is probably the best part about it i thought the atmosphere of the score was great but on the whole i i felt like it was eight episodes and you said it's short for a netflix show it still felt way too long for me i felt like this was a maybe a movie maybe a four-part miniseries at best they're just i didn't find there was a, a lot of ideas going on in it at least for me i was ultimately a little let down so the other day i was watching an episode or two of this series that is on the cw it's streaming on hulu it's called dead of summer i can't really recommend it except that watching it i realized it was trying to do something that was very similar to what stranger things did okay it's uh set in the 80s at a summer camp where all of these teenagers have arrived and there is a murder there is a prologue with um, with someone dying, uh, you know, getting killed in the camp, uh, Candyman style, starring the star of Candyman. Uh, it it 
involves all of these different, like all of the different characters that like sum up basically every slasher movie of the era. Yeah. It doesn't really work out, but it did make me at least appreciate what Stranger Things attempts to do in terms of its craft. I think that it doesn't, it pulls together all of these references without quite just feeling like a scary movie or something like that. It does not feel like it is just hurling references to be like, and this, and this, and this. It is knit together into a whole. I don't, I also, I don't love this series. I think it leaves me pretty distanced from it. I, I admire it mostly for how the Duffer brothers have managed to capture the zeitgeist of the moment, which is to create something that evokes nostalgia without ever having to license intellectual property from someone else. Right. It is actually, I think, the perfect creation for our moment. Right. In, especially in Netflix, like, relying on kind of reaching for all I of these series. I was thinking of this, too. You know, and bringing them back. Bringing back, like, Full, yeah. full House and even Arrest Development and, like, things people... Gilmore Girls. Gilmore yeah, Girls. Things back. people have these nostalgic feelings towards. And this is, like a piece of nostalgia that they can own outright. Right. I thought the same thing. And I, I think that, you know, for all that I don't feel very engaged with the product itself mm-hmm. that they've created, I, I do really admire... It's canny on their part. Yes. Whether or not the like Duffer the Brothers were doing move. that, like if whether, you know, for them it may come from a pure creative place. But to me, I felt Netflix's total calculation in having something like this. Clearly their, their uh, algorithm brains have been like, our audience really loves nostalgia and they love these properties of this era. And we can't afford to buy Steven Spielberg's movies because they're too expensive to license. So let's make our own thing and let's throw in a bunch of stuff. Like, again, maybe for the Duffer Brothers, they're coming from a place of pure love and all that jazz. But I thought it's brilliant on the part of Netflix to sort of target this as something that would make sense for their audience. Did it do the thing that I feel like the, the Duffer Brothers clearly set out to do, though, which is to, like, I don't like, really, like, recreate not just one specific property but a feel of an era in pop culture consumption to an extent they do but i almost felt like they went overboard because it it feel like it doesn't it's so 80s in air quotes it doesn't feel real to Mm, me it doesn't feel lived in it doesn't feel specific it feels like and i look i didn't go through and watch every like reference and make sure they all made sense as in oh this movie was out and like i think i read one list maybe it was the one that scott tobias put together i think for vulture where he compiled his sort of references And I think he made a note of the fact that the odds of someone in this obscure little town having an Evil Dead poster was technically possible, but so hugely unlikely that, you know, like a teenager would be that hip to this very obscure indie movie at this point. And yeah, it was stuff like that where it just every cool movie that we now look back as, you know, that weren't necessarily huge. They they, they just it seemed a little idealized and glossy and perfect in a way that made it seem less specific and lived in and and real to me. I thought of often when I was watching it, uh, Panos Cosmatos's Beyond the Black Rainbow. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I didn't think of it, but I I see where you're going already. They're they're very similar. It also is a pastiche of a lot of the same texts that that are being used here, except it is almost abstract. Yes. It is it is like you just took all of the sensory details and amped them up and barely had a discernible story. And in that case it's interesting because it takes some very commercial things and as you said it makes it kind of more into artful bit, and abstract. Yeah, into an art film. Yeah. That, I mean it is without a doubt an art film yes. that one. You would be very frustrated if you were trying to watch it for entertainment like just pure entertainment popcorn story value. Yeah. yeah. But 
I was trying to figure out why, like, why is that art <laughs> and why is this, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. A product. A product. It I, feels very calculated to me. It Maybe it's not. Calculated. I feel, but the it thing feels is, though, that I way. I do feel like there are flashes of, there are flashes of realness in it. I, I, I like the actress who plays Eleven, I think, is very good. Agreed. And, like, very good at toggling between being frightening and so vulnerable 100 percent agreed she's great yep i love the actress who plays barb yes a brief role but good good very good kind of painfully uh (laughs) believable (laughs) best friend of Uh like the prettier girl Uh (laughs) uh-huh and I was actually bothered by what the way the series handles what happens to her. Mm, I was too. It kind of shrugs it off. Yeah. Especially when the whole series revolves around retrieving one character. This one boy. Yeah. I that, felt the same way. This character, this, uh, Barb is almost made into a way to just bring in more characters into this mystery. Yeah. Um, and also the fact that, I mean, her, I guess we do see her mom in one very brief scene, but... The fact that those characters never sort of appear again. And also there are other characters, the other some of the kids in that core group who never have parents. And like even like at the end of the movie, end of the, the show, not to spoil anything, but at the end of the show, there's a scene where presumably their parents would be present and they're not at all. And I guess maybe it's it's deliberately meant as kind of a joke on the general absentee parenting nature of the of the era or at least of this story. But to me, it did feel very small, like they either couldn't afford to cast those roles or they didn't have the time or whatever. But it it seemed like a there were moments like that where I was frustrated by the narrowness of the storytelling. What did you think of the monster? Boring. Uh, Very, you know, and again, it's so familiar from other, you know, deliberately evocative of all these other creatures, like the alien. Right, its face looks the face like, is like the, sh- a, the egg the of egg. like an alien. Yeah, yeah, and, and then in general, I also found, you know, because in, in sort of a Spielbergian way, they sort of allied the creature's looks for a while, which is effective. And then at the end of the show, when we finally supposedly are getting a look at him, there's all, every time he appears, there's a lot of sort of uh, flat, like the, 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 the I'm trying to think of what's the word I want, but there's strobing. a lot of strobing. Thank you. I found that so obnoxious and frustrating and almost like it hurt my, my, my eyes to watch that at, after watching eight hours, to me, that felt like a huge anticlimax to get to the end of this series and to barely see this creature. I thought because they, they, they maybe it just didn't look all that great to begin with. And the only way to make him seem scary was to sort of lots of quick cuts and strobe lighting and everything. I I was pretty underwhelmed. Well, it's funny that also the thing from the era, one of the things from the era that I think we romanticize a lot is something that they couldn't go with. Practical practical effects. effects. Yeah. And they have, you know, a computer generated, mostly computer generated monster. Obviously I think there are parts where it's played by a person in a suit, like clambering around in the dark when you don't see him. In general, it doesn't look like it though. It looks like a digital effect to me. Right. It just, but it also, I don't, it, it didn't, it looked like, it's funny you mentioned that you don't see him for a long time. And there is this way in which you feel like the, the, they would have almost never shown him because mm. he's just this idea. Yeah. You know, like the scary, the moment in which the monster is the scariest is when he's doing something out of Nightmare on Elm Street and clawing through the walls, yes. you know, and that is another think, straight up rip yeah, off from something that else. Is, I think genuinely frightening though. It was frightening in that movie and it's frightening yes. in this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just what I, I feel like it is so carefully like this patchwork quilt sewn together, but there are so few times for me that it felt like it really flickered to life as a series unto itself mm-hmm. that I was invested in. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I like the kids, though. I will say, I did like yeah. the like the, the kids as just like a group of uh, very awkward looking. Yeah, they're like, well cast. Pre- yes, pre- very well cast for their parts. All three of them, all three of the main ones, and. Yes, they're good together. And the scenes where they play Dungeons and Dragons was fun. I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, but there was a specificity to those th- scenes that I felt was kind of missing from some and of the other they, yeah, stuff. All of the refer- references they kept making to how long it took. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I and that's that. something that we haven't seen in a ton of other stuff because that's so nerdy and so niche that I I enjoyed that part of it. But even then, they felt like Freaks and Geeks characters. That's what I was going to say, is that they felt straight out of the Freaks and Geeks playbook. They're not nearly as interestingly developed as those characters. And even the flip side, where the one main kid, Mike, his older sister is like a goody-goody girl who then is uh, experimenting with sex and falling in with the wrong crowd. It's straight out of Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, it's Lindsay. And And Freaks and Geeks is so much better at that stuff. It's like we took Freaks and Geeks... And we took out all that kind of the specificity and the detail and the rich characters, and we added, like, the Stephen King and the Spielberg horror stuff. And it's a, not a bad formula, but it feels to me – it feels very much like a formula. It really does. Here was one more general question I had that I was – you know, because I like all the stuff in this, and I just found myself frustrated. And one of the things I was wondering about eventually was, is there something antithetical about making – horror out of nostalgia because nostalgia is so warm it's about feeling good about your past having these warm associations of childhood and yes i know that some of the things we do feel that way about from childhood are often you know can be scary like poltergeist is something that i think definitely is evoked here a spielberg produced film perhaps directed ghost directed who knows but i just think that in general when you evoke these warm feelings of nostalgia it's hard to feel also very scared because nostalgia sort of puts you at ease and the point of horror is to take you on edge, to make you uncomfortable. And so I found that there was a tension almost inherently in the material between wanting to make you feel warm and fuzzy about, hey, look at this reference. Hey, look at this material. Doesn't this remind you of something with, look out, there's a scary monster creature. Look out, there's these terrifying uh, FBI guys, right? I just I, – I don't know. I'm not sure, but I was beginning to wonder if maybe that is a problem almost inherent in the structure or the, the fundamental conception. What do you think? I feel like it's not impossible to have nostalgia and horror. Okay. I think that you can see I – can, I, can, I can see watching this what it is aiming for, which is almost that feeling of uh, – being in a on a suburban street on like a uh, Halloween night and everyone is cleared out and it's creepy. It's mm-hmm. very familiar, but it's creepy also. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And I think that I don't. I mean, something like it follows. I think at times evokes that yeah, feeling. I think you that's know? fair. That's it, a good it point. It evokes this feeling of that, like teens without parents, kind of like drifting around a suburban street and this like horrifying thing that is happening. Yes. And that. It you know it has both existing at the same time. The interesting I, thing there is that that is, is sort of even though it, you're absolutely right and it definitely evokes the era, they they went out of their way to sort of avoid making it too era specific, not trying to make it feel like the 1980s. Sure, where but it it absolutely evokes the feeling yeah. of an no, 80s. No, I agree. Movie, I agree you know? in that sense. And I yeah. think that 
sure, Stranger Things gets very involved with just these all of these trappings of the 80s, yeah. like the stuff of the 80s. But I don't think it's necessarily impossible what it is aiming to do. Okay. I just uh, it was a it was a theoretical question. I think it's I, I think it's a very worthy question. Yeah. Because I you're right. I think that they do these are in large ways, especially the way nostalgia tends to be used now, it is all about reaching for this very cozy feeling yeah. and to have a cozy feeling and a scary feeling at the same time. Two different things. Before we before we wrap up, yep. I did want to ask, what did you think of Winona Ryder here? This is her most prominent role in a sure. long time. I mean, it was really nice to see her. I didn't really think that the the role necessarily made the best use of her as an actor. I You know, the, the sort of frazzled mother freaking out it didn't when she's having her real breakdown it didn't really you know i didn't really connect with her character even though now being a parent potentially her trauma could be very relatable to me i actually felt like the stronger performance was david harbour who plays hopper the the chief of police who also has this sort of tortured backstory with a child and yada 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 i thought his performance was probably the strongest of the main cast besides millie bobby brown who plays 11 i liked him I thought Winona Ryder was fine. I didn't think it was, you know, the best use of her talents. I wish that they had... I, I liked her in the role. I wish that they had filled out a bit more what is basically sketched in in the background, which is the idea that she is um, kind of like an outcast mom. Yeah, you know? or that has some sort of... In her some family history, has a history She has of, like a bad of, past relationship. Yeah. That I, there is this idea that's floated but you don't see it as much because as you said you don't get a lot of sense of the outside world beyond these like few families yeah that she is not considered a trustworthy or reliable person in town right and i thought that that like stressing that a bit more would have added to her feelings of being upset so easily not being trusted in this you know obsession she starts to have i completely agree and all the stuff with her ex-husband that's sort of brought in and then completely forgotten about and I was also frustrated, you know, Matthew Modine is like, you know, like his his whole, his role is so sort of vague and all the stuff involving his lab and and even the central sort of mythos, it's sort of interesting looking, uh, but it, it, it's left so, I think, purposefully vague, probably so that if they have a second season, which it sounds like they probably will, they'll have something, I guess, to explain or explore in more detail but they really just seem like placeholders to me a lot of the time. I, you know, again, like the spe- the vibe is good, but like the specifics a lot of the time felt kind of off or missing to me. Fair enough. Well, if you disagree, and I know a lot of people are big fans of this series, uh, make your case to us at SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. And otherwise, you can always check out Stranger Things on Netflix. How am I supposed to be a zombie? Oh, um, uh, pretty much just be a lifeless ghoul with no soul, dead eyes, scary. Did you ever have Miss Mullen? For English? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like her, but hungry for human flesh. Like, she wants to turn somebody into a zombie. Because that's kind of what zombies do. <laughs> Yeah, that's really good.
that was a scene there from Super 8, the 2011 film directed by J.J. Abrams and also produced by Steven Spielberg, which makes it a somewhat unique piece of fan fiction, Spielberg-esque filmmaking in that it is a sort of a homage to a man who actually was homaging himself in some way because he produced the film, which I for- I guess I forgot that detail about that, that movie. Yeah, I had forgotten that too. That's a little weird, to be honest. <laughs> that is weird. I mean, Super 8 is, I think, the most obviously Spielberg-esque movie that has been made maybe ever in yeah. terms of not going beyond being influenced by Spielberg. It is an attempt to be the Spielberg movie that Spielberg did not make. Right. And... And very similar to Stranger Things in so many ways, too. Right, that it is almost so concerned with its references and the person it's it's an, it's homaging. Right, and, it, it and bear, children almost, right. and their parents and their relationships and a monster that kind of looks like the monster in Stranger Things. Yeah. Suburbia. It is interesting that a filmmaker like Steven Spielberg, who has made a lot of different kinds of movies, when we say Spielberg-esque or Spielbergian, it does seem like if if not in the minds of the audience, in the minds of filmmakers who are either homaging or straight up ripping them off, it really only means a couple of things like, you know, children in danger, in a suburb, right, suburbs, suburbs uh, vaguely absentee parents, right, and then some the sense kind of, of awe, but also some kind danger, of like supernatural or sci-fi elements. Yeah, yeah. I it's funny because when you talk about the idea of like Spielberg esque qualities. I mean, he was so he is so influential to what is modern mainstream filmmaking yep. that sometimes it's difficult to even say what the qualities are right. that are you know reminiscent of Spielberg. Yeah. He has kind of defined the modern blockbuster. Right. He and George Lucas essentially right. reshaped the Movies. modern Hollywood. Yeah. So it's hard to kind of pick out elements that you're like, well, that is definitely Spielberg. When you're like, that is now now it is in kind of inherent to large scale movie making. Yeah. The thing that's interesting about a lot of these movies, including, I think, Super 8 in particular, and Stranger Things, something we didn't mention in Stranger Things, but I felt, is that the thing that they, they miss doing all those other things we just listed is I feel like they often miss the humor. Like, they go very serious. because Maybe because these filmmakers love these properties, these films, so much, it's like... How can you make fun? It's like the Bible. You can't make fun of the Bible. This is this is my thing. This is the thing that made me want to be a filmmaker. I can't I can't have any fun with it. It's serious. It's important. I have to you know exalt unto it. And I feel like they sort of miss the playful side. Super Eight. You know, I, I the movie was so leaden and serious. I mean, I remember the end where we get to see the film they made, and it, that was fun. And that was like the only time in that movie where it suddenly did actually kind of feel Spielbergian. And the parts where they're trying to make the movie, and like those are right. the parts, the best parts where it actually captures them as children, right? Whereas, and I the feel same like- could be said for Stranger Things, like with the D and D game, where yeah. they get to be kids. Yeah, yeah, it's it. It is funny that you want this kind of sense of purity that Spielberg is associated with when it comes to capturing children and how children interact and their innocence and their awe. It's a really tough thing to pull off, though. Yeah. Do you want me to go first, or would you like to go Why first? Why don't you go first? Okay. So this is a film, while I am recommending it, I do think it's one of its problems. I don't love the movie, although I like it. Is It's very serious. It's very heavy in a way that I think is detrimental. I think it could have benefited from some lightness. And... It is Midnight Special, which is 
One of the most recent movies from Jeff Nichols. He's got a brand new movie that just debuted at Cannes and is coming to theaters later this year. Um, Midnight Special is now available for rent. It premiered in theaters uh, earlier in the spring. Jeff Nichols, the guy who made Mud and Shotgun Stories, and one of my favorite movies of the last decade, really, Take Shelter. And from top to bottom, this really does feel Midnight Special does, like an attempt to capture the flavor of Spielberg of this era, you know, Close Encounters and E.T. And again, like Super 8, it is very similar in kind of structure and conception to Stranger Things. You know, it could they could almost be like siblings made by people who were given the same kind of assignment, like strip mine classic 80s pop culture about parents and children with special abilities and make something new out of it. And you have Nichols' muse, Michael Shannon, starring as the father of this child named Alton, who is kind of like Eleven, has these incredible powers, but also they're barely controlled and kind of terrifying and dangerous. And they're on the run from shadowy government forces who want to do who knows what with the boy. And, you know, like I said, I was a, I was a little uh, torn and maybe even a little disappointed by this movie. I didn't love it the way I wanted to, the way I love Take Shelter. And I think... Besides the lack of the humor, I think the problem I found was that the main family unit, again, sort of like <laughs> Stranger Things, like the main family unit, which here is as Michael Shannon and Kirsten Dunst as Alton's mom, they felt very underdeveloped to me. And there are these subplots that don't really go anywhere. Adam Driver has a small role. He's good, but his, po- his part is really kind of superfluous as this FBI agent. The stuff that I think works best in the movie is the main allegory. You have this whole sci-fi chase film, but really all this is about is parenthood and the anxiety of being a parent and wanting to protect your child from the world and wanting to preserve what makes them special and unique and having this fear that the world is going to kind of take your special your special flower and you know stomp on them and, and destroy what makes them beautiful. And whether that's mental powers or, or you know, their innocence, their sense of humor, whatever that might be. And that was the stuff in the movie as a new parent that I really responded to. And there was some very nice moments in this movie, and it has one of my favorite lines of dialogue in any movie of, of 2016, and that is when the boy says to the dad, first, you don't have to worry about me anymore because he's, you know, his powers are developing and whatnot. And Michael Shannon's character, the dad, says, I like worrying about you which is a beautiful thing and something I can definitely relate to as a parent. And interesting because, you know, Jeff Nichols is a guy who often makes movies about, you know, parents, fathers and sons. And uh, Take Shelter, a movie I loved, was very much about anxiety and the terror of being a parent. And I think it was interesting to see in this movie the way Michael Shannon's character, a very different person – But same actor is now saying that he likes worrying, that in some ways he's kind of grown, uh, that like almost maybe Jeff Nichols has grown as a dad, that he's grown to sort of love the anxiety that comes as a part of being a parent. And I thought that was interesting. I thought maybe that showed some growth for Jeff Nichols as a a guy, as a father. I did kind of wish there was maybe a little more growth as a filmmaker in Midnight Special. So a mixed recommendation, but I do think it's worth seeing and definitely worth seeing – you know, on home video. So that is Midnight Special, the very Spielbergian Midnight Special, which is available now for rent. It's one of those movies that is filled with such evocative imagery. Yep. Like there are whole sections where you could almost just take screen grabs and you'd want to like 
use them as writing prompts in a short story class absolutely and then and but the movie as a whole just isn't as interesting yeah it has towards the end yeah it gets it loses momentum as it goes along yeah and there's a lot of mystery which is great in the beginning like what where are they going what are they doing who are they running from and it seems like the more they reveal the less interesting any of it is yes agreed yeah um yeah that was one it was a movie i really wanted i was looking forward to so much yeah i did not like as much as i wanted to yeah but my my pick is a movie that i expected nothing from when i saw it for the first time and that i i loved it is wild tales which is available for streaming on amazon prime i'm cheating a bit with stars you need the stars subscription i'll allow it thank you yeah uh this is a film that i didn't think of as specifically spielberg inspired when i first saw it but of course it is it's a 2014 anthology film uh, from argentinian director demian cifron and it tells six different stories of people essentially breaking bad, going like uh, going into violent acts of revenge or just aggression. It is enormously entertaining. It is very darkly funny, and it's occasionally political in terms of how it takes on class warfare and bureaucracy in Argentina. And I would say the thing it pulls from as its main inspiration is amazing stories. Mm. which is the 1980s TV yes. series that Spielberg created right. that told a different fantasy or sci-fi or horror story each episode. Spielberg was a big fan of The Twilight Zone, was one of the four directors on the ill-fated The Twilight Zone, the movie mm-hmm. in which during the filming, three people were killed, two right. of them child actors. And Amazing Stories, which he created afterwards, was kind of it felt like a way to tell a Twilight Zone star- star- stories while leaving The Twilight Zone behind. Mm-hmm. It was just too kind of unpleasant and ugly and dark in his kind of mind and career. So all of the stories, unlike uh, Amazing Stories, all of the stories in Wild Tales are grounded in reality, though they are surreal. They, they don't have magic in them. Uh, but they do have also this dark, fable-like quality. Unlike The Twilight Zone, uh, in which episodes often came with this almost punchline-like moral at the ends. In Amazing Stories, there, there, were less, there was less of that, like, here's the lesson that you should learn. And the tales in Wild Tales are also less easily parsed. The best segments, without question, are the first and the last, which take place on a plane and at a wedding, respectively. But the third section, which re- features two men who get in this escalating battle while driving in a remote stretch of road also feels like a tribute to Spielberg's The Duel. Except in this case, both of the parties are the insane monster driving the truck. Uh, and it, it ends with, a, a, with actually a punchline of a, a really wonderful sort, considering everything that happens uh, in it. Uh, this is uh, a great film, really. I think that because it's, it's kind of an odd structure because it's, it's got the anthology format. It can be a little bewildering to know what to deal with, do with, but it was, I think the most successful film in Argentina of Argentina made film of all time. And I think it is a very unexpected Spielberg movie, which I think is maybe the best kind of uh, inspired Spielberg inspired piece. One that you don't immediately spot the references to, mm-hmm. but that are there obviously when you think about them afterwards, that is wild tales. And it is streaming on Amazon prime. With the stars subscription. Oh, with the stars. Okay. Well, well, I was going to say mine might be kind of cheating the same way, but no, because you can sign up for this this uh, streaming service now. You don't have to be a subscriber to cable because you can. Same with stars. You yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. But uh, yeah, my next uh, pick is available for rent, or you can watch it on HBO Go and HBO Now, and it is the film National Treasure from 2004, directed by John Turtletaub, and this movie has. 
many influences, like Stranger Things, it doesn't just draw from Spielberg. It definitely has some uh, Da Vinci Code in there, the sort of thriller based on conspiracies and very loose historical facts. I think it definitely was inspired in some ways by the look and the feel, the tone, and even in some degree the plot of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which were huge hits for Disney around this same time and were also produced by the same guy who produced National Treasure, which is Jerry Bruckheimer. But I also think you definitely get a lot of a heavy Spielberg vibe, particularly from the Indiana Jones franchise, which is something that a lot of people have tried to capture the flavor of, many of which unsuccessfully. And I think National Treasure, for all its derivative elements, it does play, at least to me, and I know I might be in the minority here, like one of the better Indiana Jones knockoffs, in large part because the guy who is playing our Harrison Ford surrogate, the new adventuring bookworm, Nicolas Cage. He plays Benjamin Gates, the last man in this, uh, whatever, long line of men entrusted with a secret. And at the end of that secret, Allison is a... Treasure? Not just any treasure. A national treasure? A national treasure. Look. <laughs> the best kind of The treasure. best kind of treasure, I guess, unless you had an international treasure. And frankly... Shame. As much as I like this movie, shame on them for not making the sequel International Treasure. That was a huge, huge missed opportunity. Although the second one is not terrible, I will say. Whatever it was called. Book of Secrets, I think. Not not bad. The first one is better. Look, you can mock me if you want, and I'm sure some will, but I like this movie. I liked it the very first time I saw it in the theater. I thought, this is fun. And whenever I see it on television, even if it's for like 20 minutes, I may not watch the whole thing, but those 20 minutes I watch... Very enjoyable. And it does have that thing that so many Spielberg-esque movies lack, which we've mentioned. It is fun. It has a sense of humor. It does not take its premise seriously for one second. It knows that the idea that the Founding Fathers hid a – what kind of treasure? National treasure. A national treasure that that is – not even remotely plausible, which frees it up to have all this fun and to do things like steal the Declaration of Independence and to visit all these, you know, real locations and fiddle around with these famous, you know, the Masons and all these kind of urban legends and and true myths. And it's just a lot of fun. And you have Nicolas Cage, who has this sort of eccentric persona as a guy who's collected dinosaur bones and named his son after Superman. He's the perfect guide to the world of strange American folklore. You know, he's just the right guy to take you on this tour and to play a slightly weirder and less sort of, you know, rocky, stony, leading man type Indiana Jones figure. So if you've never watched this movie, if you've always assumed it's terrible, I would say give it a chance. It might surprise you. You might just re- might just discover this is a, a fun, uh, fun ride. It is, and they have a national treasure. I'm not going to go so far as to say the film is a national treasure, but it's a fun movie. It is National Treasure. It is available for rent, or you can watch it on HBO Go or HBO Now. All right, my next pick is definitely not short on humor, which is, I think, the great element we've apparently identified as needed in a Spielberg homage. It is Attack the Block, which is available for rent right now, a 2011 film from Joe Cornish, frequent collaborator with Edgar Wright, and, in fact, co-writer of Spielberg's The Adventures of Tintin. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And it starts with what is essentially a joke on E.T., which is that 
an alien lands in in South London near the council estate that the main characters all live in on Guy Fawkes night and a group of teenagers find the alien and then they beat it to death. So I think that it it is I, I as obviously the aliens in this are not friendly ET style aliens. Mm. They attempt to kill people. Right. They have glow in the dark teeth. They are not there to make friends. But what this movie does accomplish is, I think, to really make you rethink the idea of the Spielberg-esque, like, uh, childlike innocence of, of this group of main characters. Because the group of main characters in this movie, which includes also a nurse in training played by Jodie Whittaker, uh, are mostly made up of this teenage gang who are introduced mugging her. And they are led by The Force Awakens' John Boyega in his first film role. And he is so enjoyable as Moses. I think watching this movie, it's very easy to see why people are like, that kid's a star. He's a star. He is. He's great. Right off the bat. Um, But I think that also, this movie, in addition to being just a very fun, silly movie and clever movie about... Uh, imagining an alien invasion in a rough part of South London, mostly in this housing project, uh, which most of the film takes place, and just like what that what that actually looks like, it it's a movie that that is about young characters who, unlike characters in a t- typical Spielberg movie, uh, are rushing towards adulthood, have good reason to rush towards adulthood and to armor themselves up and to not actually like relish this moment in childhood innocence but in fact are hoping to kind of like you know skip it entirely they are they act tough they are they are scary to the other main character you know for one for good reasons they've robbed her but also because she gets very used to seeing them as this force of just like you know shadowy scary teenagers and there's a really nice moment um maybe over halfway through the film when Whitaker's character realizes that Moses is a lot younger than she assumed that she had been thinking of him as like nearly a man. And actually he was still more of a kid. And, uh, you know, this is, it's also like a gory movie. It's a horror, like uh, action horror comedy, Mm -hmm. but it has this really kind of nicely tense and, nuanced relationship between those two characters between Moses and between Jodie Whittaker's character whose name I do not remember but that she goes from basically agreeing with another like white resident of the of the council house that they are monsters they are the monsters in the movie and you know over the course of it they become allies and are aligned together against this outside force so it's it's both clever and I think very deserved of its cult. Uh, it's kind of cult comedy status that it attained immediately. But I think it is also a smart remark on what the kind of typical Spielberg-like child posse looks like, you know, in the suburbs, mm-hmm. riding on their bikes. And just the fact that the child posse in this, when people saw the, see them, they run away. Yeah. You know, and who is afforded uh, childlike innocence in movies? Mm, um, I think so it's, it's a great movie. And it's definitely worth a look. It's available for rent. Attack the block. And not as you're talking, I'm thinking also, don't be too precious. Don't just do the Spielberg thing. Like you're saying, take what take the lessons of Spielberg and apply them. Give them twists. Don't just rehash. I think that's what we learned here today. So I was on vacation. I literally got back uh, about 
five hours ago, so I missed all of this week's movies, and they've been showing a lot of the upcoming stuff early, so I've missed all of it. Allison has seen most of them, though, so we're going to run through a couple of them very quickly. Yes. She's going to tell me what I need to see. I don't care about anybody else. This isn't even for the audience anymore. This is for me. Okay. Three big movies came out last week. Okay. Right? Bad Moms. Bad Moms. The comedy from the writers of the Hangover movies. Right. About moms going bad. Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne. The latest. It's about a dad. A bad dad. A bad dad. It's about. It is actually. There is a parenting. That's kind of, that's kind of what he is, yeah. right? Well, there, I mean, he doesn't there, have kids, I guess. Yeah. But. No, but there is like a parenting kind of theme in this. Oh, is there? Actually, okay. I mean, he does not adopt a baby, but there is a, a thing about his backstory. Okay. And then Nerve. Nerve. The new film from the directors of Catfish, the documentary. Right. It is about a social media game. I will rank these. Okay. Bad Moms is the best. Bad Moms is the best. Nerve is the best. A second best. It has, a, I think, a terrible ending, but okay. otherwise is like not surprisingly bad. good. Okay. And Jason Bourne is disappointing. Oh, yeah, that's what I've heard. I haven't, you know, I'm just sort of catching up. I was watching from afar very vaguely and distantly. I was shocked, kind of. I've been looking forward to Bourne. I thought it was going to be great. I'm really surprised that people, it's gotten as tepid a reaction as it's gotten. I am a huge fan of the first three Bourne movies. I I like them a lot, too. I do agree that Paul Greengrass has, I think, like, basically invented a new visual language for action in those movies. Yep. This new movie, it... I, I think like it's both like I think poorly paced in a way where I was getting bored, which is not something I often say in a Bourne movie. It has a surveillance theme that I think it fumbles badly. It's mm. I think it's telling when Nerve, this kind of goofy movie, is smarter More about interesting about yeah, s- surveillance and social media than Bourne is, mm. and it's a so, it's a central theme in Bourne. And it also, you know, it has like this, oh, Bourne is tempted back by this promise of more information about his mysterious backstory. And what you learn about him, I think, actually makes his character less interesting, Hmm. which is the part for me that was like the worst. Well, that's, I mean, we've talked about that. I mean, that's sort of the midnight special dilemma, right? It's like, how much mystery do you reveal before you make something boring? And it's not even like a mystery so much as just it adds information to a story that I felt pretty done with already. Well, that's the like, other issue. Know, is, is that, that like, the last I think movie... we had already learned enough about Jason Bourne. Yeah. And, uh, but they needed to come up with more to get him back. Right. So I know it still is, it's still Paul Greengrass. It still has his like very, you know, kind of distinctive, like shaky cam documentary inspired uh, direction. It's still got the very like brutal, very efficient action scenes, but it just doesn't give you anything that really justifies its existence in in just bringing this character back mm-hmm. you know other than that for financial, financial reasons financial reasons all right well let's move on then quickly tell me about bad moms it's that good it is i was very pleasantly surprised by it you know i think that the main thing it has going for it is just a hilarious Catherine Hahn. It is the funniest Catherine Hahn performance. You're, ta- you're talking, you're talking yeah. my language because I, I love always, Catherine Hahn. I have always loved her, but yeah. she is so funny in this yeah. as the like mom who is basically already bad, mm-hmm. as a single mom who is delightful. But it's also, I think, a movie about uh, all the other bad movies are about someone who's like failing to live up to the adorable or kind of like the good image of the role they're taking on. Bad Santa, bad teacher, right? Bad grandpa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, it, a lot of bad moms is about the pressure that women have put on themselves to like feel like if they're not giving everything to their children, that they are failing them in some way. So a lot of the movie is basically about accepting that this idea is a trap, that you know this idea is something that you're punishing yourself with and it mm-hmm. doesn't have to be the case mm-hmm. and i think it's actually pretty smart about that i also really like mila kunis who is the lead and is i think great and kristen bell who's very funny as well 
So, Bad Moms, I... Who knew? It, Go it, check it, it out. It has terrible trailers. I have watched them since, and people because when people were shocked when I said I liked it. Right. And it has horrible trailers. And finally, Nerve, really quickly. Yes. Uh, it's about a scarily plausible um, like P2P game that people mm-hmm. sign up for, mm-hmm. in which you are either a player or a watcher. Okay. If you're a watcher, you just pay for access. If you're a player, then you stream yourself as you do a series of dares for money. So people will look at your social media profile and all of that and figure out who you are and then offer you a dare. And if you do it, you get like $20, $40, more and more money as the night goes along. Okay. And Emma Roberts is the main character and she signs up for this. And then it plays for a while like a dystopian meet cute because the game sets her up with Dave Franco. Okay. And they have to do all of these dares and it's cute. And then it gets like more and more disturbing as it goes along. As I said, it loses a thread in the end, but it is for a while like one of the savviest games about, I think, our movies about our moment in social media and internet and internet fame mm-hmm. and also Pokemon Go. I think it's hard not to think about Pokemon Go when you're watching it. Well, it's well-timed then. All yeah. right. So that one was, you thought that was pretty good other than the end. Yes, pretty good. I, you know, and I'm always, I'm really interested in what the everyone related to Catfish continues to do in films. Yeah. So, they made a not terrible paranormal activity. Yeah, together those guys. And, and they're interesting movie, filmmakers. Again, like, yeah, it's got a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yeah. So it's that movie you can catch, I think, uh, on demand, and it will be perfect for that. All right, all right. Well, let's wrap things up with uh, behind the eight ball. You know how this works. Also, we give you some new recommendations for stuff that's just been added to streaming. We give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And then we each pick one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists for one another on Netflix. Allison, would you like me to go first since you just had to talk about all those movies by yourself? Yeah, why don't you go first? All right. All right. Give me three new releases. Okay. First up, new to Netflix is a movie I enjoyed at last year's Fantastic Fest, the Norwegian disaster movie The Wave, about a village in a remote part of Norway that is threatened by a massive tsunami. It is much smaller in scale uh, and approach to the disaster movie in terms of like the latest wave, no pun intended, of American disaster movies like San Andreas or Independence Day Resurgence, where literally entire continents are being destroyed. You know, that's what I liked about this movie is that it is much smaller in scale. It's focused on this town and mostly on this one family led by the dad who's a geologist who's the first one to realize this terrible wave is coming to destroy everyone he knows and loves. And it's also a very – I thought it was a very satisfying, very solid little disaster movie. That is The Wave on Netflix. Next up, now on Tubi TV, another movie I saw at Fantastic Fest this a few years ago and one that went on to become an Academy Award nominee for Best Foreign Language Film. It is Bullhead, starring Matthias Schoenartz in the role that pretty much launched him to international stardom. He plays a cattle farmer named Jackie who is jacked up on meat steroids and he gets mixed up with the mafia in Belgium. This has a very good, very beefy lead performance from Schoen Arts, and it's a kind of an unusual sort of neo-noir with an international flair. I haven't seen this movie since it came out, but I really liked it when it did. That is Bullhead, which is now available on Tubi TV. Finally, also now on Netflix, a sort of curio for fans of, which I certainly qualify as, fans of Paul Verhoeven. The film is called Tricked, 
And Paul Verhoeven actually made this all the way back in 2012, but it's only being released now. It had a very limited release earlier this spring. It's actually a two-part film. The first part is nonfiction. The second part is fiction. The first part is... It's about the unusual creation of the fiction part. Paul Verhoeven actually made this movie based on a crowdsourced script. He and his collaborators basically created the scenario, and then his Dutch fans were given the option to write the next part piece by piece by piece. I don't know what that game is called, but where you have one person write something in the corpse. Thank you. So you have one person write something and then the next person, the next person. And so basically they had no idea what the end was going to look like when they started. And they let the fans choose how things were going to turn out. The documentary part, I actually found a little underwhelming. The premise is very interesting, this unusual crowdsourcing script thing. But in the world of Project Greenlight, in the world of The Chair, the behind-the-scenes stuff, the drama here is just nowhere near as interesting as like those kind of shows. But I actually thought the film itself, to my surprise, it's brief. It's like 50 minutes long, but it's actually pretty good. And it's very Verhoeven-ian, Verhoeven-ian, even though it was written by these other people. I actually, you know, you really feel Paul Verhoeven's touch in the movie, and I don't know that I would have recommended seeing this in a in a movie theater, but on Netflix, absolutely. So that is tricked. All right, two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Jared in Oklahoma. Jared writes, "Hey guys, thanks for the great podcast. I wanted to recommend The Delivery Man, this British comedy series, not repeat, not the Vince Vaughn movie." is sharp, witty, and full of great cringe-worthy moments, and Vince Vaughn is nowhere to be found. Keep up the good work. That is from Jared in Oklahoma, and his recommendation is The Delivery Man, and that is available on Netflix. Our next email comes from Thomas. Thomas writes, Hey, Allison and Matt. I don't know if it'll fly, but with David Sandberg's horror feature Lights Out hitting theaters and getting positive reviews, I'd like to do something a little different and recommend the short film on which it's based, as well as a couple of other notable short horror films. The short version of Lights Out features the same premise as the new movie. A scraggly-haired silhouette, which only appears when the lights are out, somehow grows closer with each flick of the light switch. In just 160 seconds, this film managed to make me feel eight years old again, terrified of what unspeakable things might lurk in the shadows of my closet at night. To say much of anything about 2AM, the smiling man would spoil the fun, but let's just say the title is apt indeed. In the middle of the night, someone encounters a strange smiling man on a deserted street. You may very well cringe the next time you encounter a friendly stranger. Finally, I'd like to recommend a mysterious viral video which took Reddit by storm in 2015 with the unwieldy title 11BX1371. Depending on who you ask, it's either a Polish art project or the key to every crazy conspiracy theory you've ever heard of. Featuring a costumed figure communicating in code in an abandoned building, it plays like a successor to the creepy video in The Ring repurposed for our modern age of digital paranoia. Whatever it is, 11BX1371 is a fascinating and unsettling watch. All of these are available on YouTube, along with dozens of other great short horror films. And that is from Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number 15, and number 15 on my my list right now is yet another Netflix series. It is called Cooked, and this is 
Netflix has so many series. There are literally some that I don't know anyone who's watched, and I do not know anyone who's watched this. Have you watched this series? Nope. No, I don't know anyone who's watched it. It's called Cooked. The description is, as he tries his hand at baking, brewing, and, and braising, acclaimed food writer Michael Polin explores how cooking transforms food and shapes our world. It's a cooking show, which I've been known to enjoy. I think I added this right after the baby was born. We were watching. We watched all of The Mind of a Chef with David Chang, which we really enjoyed. That was a great, like, baby watch because you could, like, pause in the middle of an episode. You could watch one episode. You could watch ten. It didn't matter. And this, like, when we finished that, they recommended Cooked. So I added it. It's slowly been moving down my list in the meantime. Maybe I will get to it someday. Allison, it is your turn to count down some titles. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. All right, well, first up, uh, speaking of Netflix series, there is a new docu-series, Last Chance You. It's a six-part series looking at the 2015 season of the East Mississippi Community College Lions, who live in a small town in Mississippi and are scrapping for NFL attention without the prime platform or the resources of Division I college football. It's gotten comparisons to Friday Night Lights and to Hoop Dreams. I I have yet to get a chance to check it out, but I am looking forward to it. That is Last Chance You. New to Amazon Prime is A Courtship. This is a documentary from Amy Cohn about a 30-something woman who is practicing Christian courtship, which is this kind of particularly uh, conservative evangelical uh, idea of courtship or of, of kind of finding a, a partner for marriage. Uh, it's kind of like the quiverful movement is kind of tied into that as well. But it is all about emotional and physical purity. And she is living with this with this couple who are essentially her adoptive parents and who are evaluating suitors for her. The idea of this is that you don't date. Your parents like help you find the right person. And then you hopefully saved everything for them. Uh, including your first kiss. It is a fascinating look at this particular uh, kind of approach to religious uh, pairing, but it doesn't condescend to its characters. It still manages to be plenty disturbing when you watch someone cry over having given away her first kiss before marriage. That is a courtship. It is on Amazon Prime. And finally, new to Vimeo is Thunder Road. This is a short film written, directed by, and starring Jim Cummings uh, as a man eulogizing his mother. Is all one take. It won the top prize at Sundance and at some other festivals. I was, in fact, on the jury for the Palm Springs Short Film Festival. And a few people there uh, came up to, to talk to me about Film Spotting SVU. It was so nice to meet you all. Nice. Um, we gave this a special mention, not actual, even not an even like a prize. We just gave it the special mention shout out, and yet somehow Jim Cummings ended up in the middle of all of the pictures uh, during the prizes. So the guy is clearly going places, but it is a very funny, very well made short, uh, Thunder Road on Vimeo. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? All right, I have one from David and one from Dave. First up is David in Charlotte, North Carolina, who writes, uh, asks that we give a shout out to Serenity, streaming on Netflix. Although this film definitely has a cult following, I think it is underappreciated. It was off Netflix for a time, but now is back. I haven't, hadn't seen the TV show before I watched this film, but I still loved it. I caught the TV show later and realized it was a lot simpler concept, basically an outer space gun smoke. Then Joss Whedon took a bunch of story strings and created a truly fun and funny film with a great storyline. There are many laugh out loud lines. Going on a year now, I ain't had nothing twix my nethers and weren't run on batteries. 
It's a good one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yet the story still succeeds in creating truly interesting characters and a complex villain. Great cast. The ending sequence is complex and satisfying, with Mal taking down the badass assassin and River coming out of her shell to rain destruction on the Reavers. I've seen this film 10 times and it never gets old. My favorite science fiction film of all time. So that is on Netflix. Thank you, David. And Dave in Redding, Connecticut writes, Now streaming on Netflix is the quirky dark comedy A Long Way Down. Starring Pierce Brosnan, along with the always good Tony Collette, Aaron Paul, and a wonderful performance by Imogen Poots. Four strangers meet on a rooftop in London, each looking to commit suicide, but their plans are changed by the circumstances and they make a pact to stay alive. I was pleasantly surprised by this film and recommend listeners give it a try. Thank you, Dave. All right, and one film chosen by me, by number, from your. You give me number six. It is something I've actually already watched. It is BoJack Horseman. I have recently finished the third season. I do think it is one of the best originals Netflix has ever done. If you have started this and felt like, oh God, it's just another like mean Hollywood satire, I think that is easy to get that feeling. I would say give it through half of the first season and then it becomes the true bit of misery that the rest of the show is. <laughs> it is really well done. Uh, BoJack Horseman. That is on Netflix, another Netflix original, clearly dominating this this conversation. Uh, at some point, and the pop there, culture conversation. At some point, there will be no others, that other That's culture. It, all, it will just all all shows and tel- and movies are Netflix shows. I'm and imagining, movies. I'm imagining the like the Running Man esque, uh, you know, like the opening crawl. The year is twenty twenty five. All content is created on Netflix. Yeah, it's like Demolition Man, right? You know, like all restaurants are Taco Bell, right? Exactly, exactly. All content is Netflix. Yeah, we're not that far off. I give it maybe four years tops. All right. Before that happens, though, let's get to our options for our next listener's choice review. This time we've got three recent movies to choose from. It's an intriguing batch. I have the first one. It is the film entitled Mr. Holmes from 2015, directed by Bill Condon. A fine director. I forgot that he directed this. And it is available on Hulu and Amazon Prime. You can stream it on either one right now. The film stars Ian McKellen as Sherlock Holmes. You also have Laura Linney as housekeeper Mrs. Monroe. And it is set with a sort of an older Holmes. I think he's like 90 years old. And he's beginning to lose his you know, famous mind. He's, his mind is beginning to fall apart. And he's trying to recall the details of this important case. And I didn't see this movie. I missed it, but I'm very intrigued. I love the premise, and I, I love. I, I haven't read a ton of Sherlock Holmes. I'm not like an expert on Holmes, but I always think he's a fascinating character. And we could actually do a whole show on Sherlock Holmes. That would be great. Between the old movies, I, you know, a lot of the Sherlock, old movies, the new Sherlock, Sher, the new Sherlock, which I've seen a bunch of. Yeah. I think that would be fun. A fun. There e- are multiple Holmes movies too. Like just sets oh, of there's them, dozens. Which would be fantastic. Yeah, that would be actually be a lot of fun. So that's option number one. Mr. Holmes, uh, probably with a whole Sherlock Holmes theme around it. And that one is available on Hulu or Amazon Prime. All right. Our second pick is on Netflix. It is actually technically a Netflix original with a slightly weird story in that it was it was originally, I think, acquired by Paramount and then was passed off to Netflix for reasons unknown. But it is The Little Prince. It will be premiering on Netflix on August 5th. Uh, it was at Cannes last year, actually. It premiered at Cannes. It's a French film, though I believe that the version that is coming out uh, will have an English dub as well. It's a combination stop motion and computer animated film that is in part based on the 1943 novel, The Little Prince by Antoine Saint-Exupéry. 
and it's directed by one of the co-directors of Kung Fu Panda, written by the writer of The Box Trolls, and it it's the first, uh, I guess, like animated feature to be based on The Little Prince, which is a beloved classic. And the little prince parts are done in stop motion. And then there's this whole framing narrative that is done in more kind of classic computer animation that uh, tries to expand on the themes. I had very mixed feelings about this, but I think there is so much to talk about in it. And this film is clearly Netflix's like attempt at bid at getting a best animated Oscar nomination. So I think that it will continue to be in the conversation. So I think there's a lot for us to talk about there. That is the little Prince. It is your second option. And that will be on Netflix on August 5th. Okay. I haven't seen that one just for the record. I'm very intrigued to see that one as well. Our final option. I haven't seen this one either. I have not either. Dying to see it. It is the latest film. Is it the latest film from Hong Sang-soo? I think it is. Okay. He's pretty prolific though. He might've he turned one out. When well, we were looking certainly one of the most recent, from Hong Sang-soo. It is available right now on Fandor. It is called Right Now, Wrong Then. The very brief plot synopsis is an art house film director and an aspiring painter meet and spend the same day together twice. And the, the last word there is key. I took this little uh, excerpt from the Hollywood Reporter's positive review of the film. It says, taken separately, these two medium-length works would be diverting, but also rather minor Hong, with their typical dry humor and observations about life and love, but taken as a single 120-minute work, the small differences in the dialogue and attitudes of part one and part two reveal nothing less than the humanity, inner life, and subconscious decision-making processes of the characters, turning the whole into one of Hong's strongest features to date. And I've seen a few of Hong Sang-soo's films, but I'm not an expert. Do you want to do you want to talk at all about him and describe him to our I feel like, listeners if they're unfamiliar like with him? Sometimes I feel like people describe him as like Korea's answer to Woody Allen sometimes, which mm. I think is both right and not right. Yeah. He's a lot I feel like he has much more of a sense of self-loathing, <laughs> caustic self-loathing yeah. than Woody Allen does. Yeah. But he's also his films are like very like dryly funny and just mostly filled with people drinking way too much and making yeah. terrible Hanging romantic out, decisions. Drinking. Yes, making and like, bad decisions. And yeah, and like kind of trying to further careers that are often not going the way that these characters plan. But yeah. they're they're just like they're very funny, kind of quietly caustic films. Yeah. And I've liked the movies of his I've seen, but I've heard this one is like one of his best for sure. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that one as well. That is right now, wrong then, which is available on Fandor. Okay, well, which of these three movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You can always send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or, and much easier, enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, August 8th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film. And then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out on Tuesday, August 16th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and shows we discuss on the podcast. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review you pick. But in the meantime, make sure you're following us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And of course, you can also follow the show at twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. That is where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we, but mostly Allison, are always sharing more streaming suggestions. It is a great 
follow on Twitter. I learn things from our own Twitter account almost every day. So thank you, Allison, for that. My pleasure. Yes. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>